Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Patient Convert Podcast. Really excited to have you listening today. It'll just be your co-host, Justin Knott. And I'm really excited about our orthopedic surgeon guest, Dr. Vinod Dasa. So Dr. Dasa, thank you for joining us. And to get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, all of those type of good things. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. So I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I'm in New Orleans. I'm at LSU Health here in New Orleans, but I do the bulk of my clinical practice at a large health system here called Oshner. I did my training up in New York, did my medical school up in Albany, and then my residency in Buffalo. And then I did my fellowship with the Insall Scott Kelly Institute in Manhattan, which is basically one of the pioneering practices for uh, knee replacement. And then I got recruited to come down in New Orleans back in 2007 post-Katrina. So as you can imagine, the city was devastated. The LSU Department of Orthopedics was struggling. And so I got recruited to come down here to kind of rebuild to the best I could the department. And so I spent the first few years just kind of figuring out what's what, coming right out of fellowship and training. You're just trying to get your feet under you and, and get your practice up and running. And as you can imagine, New Orleans back then, you know, there were no streetcars, there were blue tarps everywhere. I mean, barely a grocery store was open. So it was interesting times back then. I think for me, very informative because I got asked to do a lot of things that I otherwise wouldn't have done because there was no one else to ask. So I was getting involved in meetings and getting involved in projects that I doubt I would have ever seen otherwise. And so you know, fast forward, helped rebuild a lot of our research infrastructure, clinical practice, things like that. And here we are today. Well, and that that had to have been fun at that time too, because like you said, I mean, getting to wear that many hats and getting to do things versus just kind of walking into a kind of a regular gig as a general ortho at a hospital, you're going to do these couple things day in and day out and getting thrown into a situation like that during something as chaotic and in a real rebuild scenario yeah, I'm sure it was a lot of fun getting to wear that many hats and where you are today because of it and all the knowledge that you gained. Yeah. So, I mean, I like you said, I think I got experiences that would have otherwise taken me 10, 15 years to get within my first, you know, three or four years there. So it's been really interesting to see, you know, how healthcare functions and, and how to get involved at different stages, but more on a fast track pace that, that I was on. Excellent. So I've got to jumping right into it. Uh, once we had booked the podcast out, I was doing a little bit of research on you and, and your background and something really jumped out at me on the knee replacement side that you are doing a lot of opioid free knee replacements, which is a little mind boggling to me. So I wanted to ask about what is that? How do you keep the pain under control? And obviously with the opioid kind of epidemic that is hitting America, I mean, why you wanted to make sure that that is becoming a, a reality, which sounds really incredible for patients. Yeah. So we've made, you know, tremendous progress over however many years, probably over the last 10 years, but really over the last five years, you've seen this really huge monumental shift in how we perform orthopedic surgeries and pain control, especially knee replacement, right? And so one of the big changes was our shift from general anesthesia to spinal anesthesia, and then our recognition about regional nerve blocks. And then, you know, we went started the femoral nerve and we've now moved closer down to the knee to the adductor canal block. And if you notice, we did a tremendous job managing pain during the hospital stay, right? I mean, we're now, do, we were doing outpatient surgery. So mm -hmm. that means patients have a pretty good pain controls. They don't need to stay in the hospital anymore. So we're doing a pretty good job of managing pain within the four walls of the hospital. 
But I realized, you know, once the patient hit the parking lot, it was kind of like, you know, good luck, right? Mm-hmm. Wheel them down, put them in their car and, and off they go. And it's crickets. There's no help. There's no innovation. There's no nothing in the post-discharge space. And so I started working on some technology where you could freeze the nerves around the knee about a week before the surgery. And that new technology is called Iovera. And we started using that technology back in 2014. And just, you know, I had treated patients with knee arthritis with freezing the nerves around the knee and they were getting tremendous relief. And so I thought to myself, hey, you know, what if we applied this in the surgical space? That may be a big deal. It may move the needle. And we went ahead and started treating uh, and freezing those nerves about a week before surgery. Then lo and behold, we did a research study to see how those patients did. And I reduced my narcotic prescriptions by almost 45%. Wow. That's amazing. Back then. Yeah. So then, uh, you know, as with most things, right, you keep iterating and you try to keep improving and improving. And we had a long acting nerve block uh, called Expiril was approved by the FDA for shoulder nerve blocks. So we started using it around the knee. Granted, it was off label, but, you know, I felt clinically that was the right thing for my patients, changed a few other things. And then what I started realizing is, you know, I was talking to my patients after about, you know, maybe two years or so of, you know, enhancing our protocols and tweaking and, and doing things. And I started asking my patients in the office, you know, how's your pain? And my pain's great. I was like, okay, so how many pain meds are you taking? Well, I took all of them. I'm like, wait a minute. So your pain's really good, but why are you taking pain medicine? They're like, well, because you gave it to me. I'm like, wait, but on the bottle, it says as needed. They're like, well, then why'd you give it to me? And so I went into, you know, I'm starting to have these kind of very circular conversations with my patients especially the older ones, right? Because you're the doctor. You gave me a bottle with stuff in it. I'm supposed to take it, period, right? So I started, you know, paying a little more attention to my patients postoperatively. And a lot of them would say either number one, they actually listened to me and it said as needed. So they didn't take it or they took very few of them. Or, you know, like I said, I had some of the patients I would just take them because I gave it to them. And I started realizing, wait, a lot of these patients aren't using the pain medicine I'm giving giving them. So I started backing off on my narcotic prescriptions and backing off, backing off, backing off. And then COVID hit. And so, you know, what was that? March of 2020. And at that point, I'd seen enough of these patients where I'm like, whoa, hardly anyone's taking anything, but I didn't have the guts to kind of go cold turkey. And I started, mm-hmm. I emailed all the nurses and therapists at the hospital because usually I like to do these things as a team. I don't like just putting an edict out because there's stuff I may not realize or know or there, you know, so it's really... It's a team effort where I am at Oshner. And so I'd emailed them and I said, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. This is what I'm noticing in the office after surgery. And they're like, well, maybe, you know, and so we're kind of bounce around ideas. COVID hits. So obviously everything stopped. And I thought this is a cool opportunity to kind of hit the reset button, right? Because when we come back, you know, we had six weeks off or whatever it was. I'm like, this is kind of a nice kind of line in the sand where I could come back and maybe really change. So COVID comes back and I told everybody, hey, when we come back, I think we can go opiate free. You know, we've got all of this in place. We have enough experience here. And obviously, if the patients are struggling afterwards, I can prescribe it, pain meds and narcotics. Let's see how this goes. And so we came back, was it mid-May of 2020? And we went opiate free. So all the patients got after surgery was Tylenol and NSAID, so diclofenac. And so we started doing it. The world kept turning. The sky didn't fall. You know, patients are doing well. And you know, no one was the wiser. And so we just kept doing it. And then we pulled our data. So this past March with minimum, because I wanted minimum 90 days after surgery. And we looked to see how we did. We looked at our pain and function scores and I looked to see how many patients took narcotics after surgery. 
Because here in Louisiana, I think a lot of states, it's now centralized opioid prescriptions. The state pharmacy board captures all of that. And we have a dashboard so I can look up every one of my patients and see if they received any opiates anywhere in the state. And actually, they've got networks with other states. So you can actually see in the whole region if anyone got opiates. So it's a great tool for physicians to use. Actually, we're supposed to be using it on all our patients. And so we pulled all the opiate data. And what we found is we looked at the first 40 patients, eight of which were on opiates going into surgery. So 32 were opiate naive going into surgery. So if we look at just those 32 patients, opiate naive going into their knee replacement, 85% were completely opiate free 90 days after surgery. Wow. That is incredible. So all they took was Tylenol and NSAIDs. And so that now has continued. So that's been locked in and, and it's now our expectation. It's normal for us. And the key component of that though is, yeah, you're withholding opiates, but is there pain through the roof now? You're just withholding opiates mm-hmm. and the yeah. answer is no. So, cause we capture all of those scores, right? Coup scores and promise scores and pain scores. And so the patients are doing just as well and have no opiates on board. So we're able to achieve what, you know, I think everyone has been hoping to get, which is reduction in pain, enhanced pain control, enhanced recovery without the needs for opiates and narcotics. And so, so yeah, so it's been a great, great clinical experience. I think the patients appreciate it. I think we're doing hopefully our part in terms of dealing with the epidemic and, and trying to find hopefully a path forward that we can hopefully share with the rest of the medical community and really find it's there. We just have to go find them, whatever you do, whether it's chest or belly or whatever, you know, there is a path to get here. Cause if you can do it for knee replacements, I promise you there's a pretty good chance you can do it for just about anything. Cause arguably within all of healthcare, we were probably one of the most painful surgeries in medicine is knee replacement surgery. So if we can figure it out for this, then really uh, we should be able to do it in a lot of other areas too. Now being, as you mentioned, a kind of a year and a half, and since you hit that reset button, you've got this data, are you helping other colleagues across the country implement this that are doing these surgeries? Have, have you been working with anybody else to try to get them to that 85% mark like you're at? Yeah. So, you know, obviously it requires a lot of innovations and it requires a lot of things. And so, you know, there are we're talking about it. You're giving lectures, you know, people email me about it and, you know, social media and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, but it's a heavy lift to move the needle at this level. So there are companies and industry that I'm working with to help kind of get that out there, get this information out there. There are other surgeons that are doing similar things, maybe not zero opiates, but awfully close. And so, yeah, so it's a team effort and we're trying to get the word out to teach how other surgeons can get there. The challenge though is the system doesn't reward it, right? And so if you look at the way healthcare incentivizes us, if you eliminate opiates and do all the hard work, there's no incentive, right? Not that we're all hoping and wanting our patients to take opiates, but you know, if the system doesn't incentivize it, then, and you've got competing things that you're trying to get done, you're going to get done the stuff that you're incentivized to get done, Mm -hmm. right? Because we only have limited amount of time and bandwidth and resources. And so if that's the case, then yeah, it's important. We'll get to it, but just not today because I've got these other three things I need to get done. And so that's the inertia and that's the challenge. We all know it's important. It's just, you know, can we get employers and government and insurance companies and everyone to kind of say, hey, you know, this is important. We're going to now incentivize you to go in this direction. And until that happens, it's just going to be a heavy lift. Yeah. And and that makes a lot of sense to me because if you've got an orthopedic surgeon looking at all of the priority things, and as you mentioned, the incentivization things to to get done over the next six months to a year, 
why put this at the top of the docket outside of kind of wanting to go down the good Samaritan route. It's like, well, you've got this easy pathway of rights narcotics, post-surgery, you know, the patient's going to do fine. You don't have to take a risk of them being in high pain or or any of that. So it's just like path of least resistance. I'll handle the stuff I'm either incentivized to do or that is going to be easier to do and not go the route of implementing something like this. Right. Yeah. I mean, it requires a fundamental change in culture that this is what you want to do, you know? And so the question then is why? That makes a lot of sense. Now, I would assume because you do sports medicine as well. You're obviously at LSU, which is one of the top football programs and just collegiate programs that's out there in the SEC. Is this model, does it really matter between, say, collegiate and pro-level athletes trying to get back out? Because you see a lot of them like Russell Wilson having to get pins put in his fingers or whatever it is. But is that model still kind of followed on the high-level athletic side as it is for a normal Joe Smo that's 55 or 60 and has to get a knee replacement? Yeah. So, you know, the concept of enhanced recovery after surgery does, is not limited to, you know, a 70 year old getting a knee replacement. Mm-hmm. It, this concept's been there forever for general surgery and abdominal surgery and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, these enhanced recovery protocols apply to elite athletes as they do, you know, your grandmother. And so, you know, things like aloe vera, there is, so there's a growing interest potentially in using it for ACL reconstruction and enhancing recoveries after that in a lot of other areas. You know, one of the biggest fears though, is are you making the joint insensate where if you numb it up, are you going to lose the protective oh, that makes sense. sensation, mm-hmm. right? And things like that. And the answer is no, because the, the nerves that we're blocking are really more geared towards certain aspects of the knee, for example, compared to other nerves. And so you don't lose the protective sensation of pain or proprioception because there are other nerves handling that. And so we're just targeting the key nerves for specific types of pain. And so, yeah, so there's a lot of interest in you scaling this, you know, these technologies across other areas, shoulder and rib fractures, for example, can you go after some of the nerves around the rib fractures? So it's not as painful and things like that. So, yeah, there's a lot of growth here. It's relatively young and new technology as is some of these other protocols. So I think the, you know, the future is bright, you know, there's a lot of opportunity here. Oh, that's fantastic. Switching gears a little because this kind of leads us down kind of a marketing path, which is what we talk a lot about on the podcast. You're involved in a lot of stuff just outside of the clinical practice side, kind of wearing multiple entrepreneurial hats. So I'd love to talk a little bit about, I know there's a lot of surgeons either that are early on in their career, maybe further down and have wanted to diversify and be involved in maybe some business adventures, those things, and become an entrepreneur. And either they are not sure how to get started or probably feel a little overwhelmed. Like, how do I take on that much more stuff on my plate? Tell me a little bit, hey, what are you involved in and what are you doing? But how did you get in there? What type of advice for orthos or just busy physicians out there in general that maybe want to diversify their career outside of the clinical practice? Yeah, honestly, I think physicians really need to diversify themselves outside the clinical practice. I mean, healthcare is changing. You're running faster on the hamster wheel. And so the end game doesn't look pretty. So I think physicians actually have to look and broaden their skill set beyond just the exam room or the OR. And if you think about it, physicians are in a very unique position. They can leverage a number of different assets to their benefit. So it could be as simply as you know, how do you take your medical license and leverage it well beyond just seeing a patient, right? And the other thing to think about is physicians represent a low risk category, 
whether it's going to the bank or, you know, funding or things like that. And so, you know, all your local banks, they're going to be willing to fund you, right? You're not going to have to jump through a number of hoops as some sketchy person down the street because you're in a low risk category. So if you're looking to diversify, it can be done in a bunch of different ways that doesn't involve running faster on the hamster wheel. You know, it could be not that I'm a real estate mogul. I mean, but it could be, you know, it could be even as simply as real estate. You know, a lot of physicians do invest in real estate and get involved in those angles. I think from an industry perspective, there are a number of companies, startups looking for help, looking for advisors and clinical acumen to guide them in the right direction. But I think you have to be a known quantity. You need to get out there. You can't just be hiding under a rock in your practice somewhere. You know, you could even as easily talk to if you're in orthopedics and and you work with implant and device reps or even pharmaceutical reps. They are a great resource, I think, for physicians to get plugged in. They know they have a pulse on the industry. They know potentially if their company is looking for help or, you know, it could be like, say, a 1099 rep who's constantly getting new technologies brought in that they want to put in their bag. They have their pulse on what's coming out, right? And you may even want to talk to them and say, hey, can you help me find some new technologies or new young companies that are looking for clinical advisors or clinical help? And they can get the word out. So I think physicians really need to leverage all the relationships, just like everyone leverages their relationship with us to get us to prescribe more things or or write for more things or do this or do that, right? Because we control the healthcare dollar with our pen and with our scalpel. Likewise, I think we can reverse that, leverage those relationships in the reverse way and talk to those people and say, hey, what opportunities are out there? Where, you know, hopefully the rep or somebody knows you and they know your skill set and they know your personality. Can you go out there and help me go find some new opportunities in healthcare? So I think you have to be creative. You got to be innovative, but you have to be a known quantity. You have to be out there so people know that, hey, you you have something to bring to the table, right? And I think social media is a great way to do that, to build your brand, to get your name out there. So people say, hey, I like the way that person thinks, or they're really posting some interesting things, or that's a novel idea. You know, can we get them on board with our company or with our product that we're working on? I think we do a very poor job collectively as physicians of really telling people who we are, how we think, why we think. So that way, when a new company is born or they're looking to write some new health policy, right, at the legislative level or whatever it is, people don't realize that they need to talk to us. Yeah, that's a great point. And that is something I definitely want to talk to. I mean, obviously, even the reason that you're on the podcast is your activity on LinkedIn. And and I think you connected with my wife and the other agency owner and our our podcast co-host, Kelly. What are you doing from a thought leadership development standpoint? You're very active on LinkedIn. You're obviously on this podcast and we're doing video too. And that's something that we preach a lot to physicians is you really need to focus and not forget about your personal brand because that's really what's going to take you, whether it's about building colleague relationships, whether it's building business relationships, or it's building direct to patient relationships as the expert in your field. It all starts with whether it's getting in front of the camera or getting in front of the microphone or getting in front of a a pen to paper, writing blogs, but you got to choose a meeting. You got to get out there. So what's been your mediums of choice and what's your advice you have on building your thought leadership? So I think there are different platforms based on what you're looking to accomplish, right? And so I think, you know, Facebook and Twitter and those kinds of things are looking for a broad audience, probably driving patients uh, to practice, you know, that kind of stuff, right? So if you're looking to be busier, that's great. But, you know, I'm of the mindset of working smarter, not harder. 
And so running faster on the hamster wheel and loading my practice up with 20% more patients so I can run faster on the hamster wheel, to me, that's not a smart use of your time, right? Because you've got a lot of expertise. You've got a lot of know-how built into what you've accomplished. Let's say you've been in practice 10 years. So seeing three more patients doesn't leverage that to its maximum, right? So then you've got other platforms like LinkedIn, for example, that are more professional, where you can take that experience and leverage it to your advantage, right? Get out there and let people know that you've got something to offer besides doing another knee injection or shoulder injection, right? We know that, but that doesn't help our company or help our health system or help whatever kind of think bigger. And so, you know, I think physicians need to start, and we've been trained to be humble, right? Just keep quiet, Mm -hmm. go to the office, do your thing, you know, don't make waves, you know, and just go, which is fine. And there are some people that's all they want to do, right? And so if it's not, and if that's who you are, then great, you know, then I think maybe do a little bit on Facebook or something like that, drive patients in and do your clinical thing. But if you want more of a sustainable, I think, uh, path forward, then I think you need to kind of start thinking broader. And if you're an endocrinologist and you have some ideas around diabetes or or obesity or, or what have you, like, why are you holding that into yourself, right? Why is it just on a notebook on your desk? Who's going to learn about that? Who can hear about that, right? And so that's why I think the digital platforms are huge for physicians to create a voice and create an identity because it's been beaten into our heads to just mind your own business, put the blinders on and just move forward. And I think that that's been to our detriment. And I think we learned that in medical school and we've got to unlearn some of that stuff and realize we have a voice and we have a seat at the table. We just were taught not to take advantage of it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, I, and it seems like to me, what we tell physicians a lot too is is two things. And I'd love your opinion on them is really, you've got to start somewhere. I think the physicians get overwhelmed by thinking about like, well, what camera equipment do I need? Like this and that and the other. And it's like, start, that's the best place, especially as a busy surgeon is to start and to just like you're doing and taking time out of all of the different things you have is you've got to be deliberate about it. Like it's got to become part of your normal process on a monthly basis, whether it's specific carve time out or just being deliberate about getting it on your schedule throughout the month. But I mean, what do you think about? Cause that's really what we talk about is you got to just get started and you got to be deliberate. And, you know, and people are looking for sincerity. They, they want you to be genuine. You know, it's not about the camera and the light that you got. It's about what you have to say. You know, 100%. I mean, are you, are you putting something, I mean, are you just, you know, saying, Hey, look, that baby elephant, wasn't that great getting pushed up to the hill or whatever. That's not what, you know, it's like, what are your thoughts on healthcare? And you're so knowledgeable on it. We want to hear you. Right. And so people rarely hear from physicians. There's so few voices out there. It's not hard to get your voice out there. The noise is not that bad as it comes to physicians talking. So it's a very light lift to just simply, you know, and start easy. Just say, Hey, what do you think about I don't know, the opioid epidemic. I mean, pick something that is important where a physician's voice should be heard and put it out there, right? And then slowly kind of dip your toe in the water. And trust me, LinkedIn doesn't bite. You know, no one's going to come and, you know, punch you in the head or anything. So, you know, you dip your toe in the water and you get used to it. Like, oh, wow, there are people that liked what I said and it resonated. And then you go a little further and a little further and a little further. And then all of a sudden now you, you look back and like, holy cow you know, people are listening to what I'm saying. This is crazy. It's not just one patient in an exam room. It's a lot of people that think what I'm saying is important. So I have the ability maybe to move the needle and then it gets really, really fun and really interesting at that point. Yeah, it it for sure does. 
And I think what you said too is interesting because they're the rawness side. And if you just look at all of the social platforms as a whole, as you look at what LinkedIn's been doing over the last year and a half or so, rolling out LinkedIn Live, they've got stories now, you've got Facebook Live, Facebook Stories, Instagram, IGTV, Instagram Stories. All of that stuff is really predicated on rawness and live and user-generated content. And most of the content you see on those platforms and the most reach on those platforms because they want tool adoption, they want people using those tools, is going to be by using your phone and creating real on-the-spot content. And that's what 80% of what you see on platforms anyway. So I think that that's what consumers, patients, colleagues associate with good quality content now is it doesn't need to be a big production. It's really about the, like you said, standing behind the material and the quality of that material as far as what's being said in the videos and not the production that's behind them. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, just as as much as I do, there's a lot of fluff out there, right? And it's just manufactured stuff and it doesn't resonate with you. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But then when you find those posts that are like legitimately real, it's an issue. It connects with you. Like, okay, I like what they're saying that people can read through the BS. It's not that hard. So how do you differentiate? 100%. You be sincere. That's it. It's Mm -hmm. not that hard. It's not that complicated. And collaborate. I think especially early on, colleagues want to help colleagues and they want to help them get their story out too. And there's plenty of people out there like yourself that have been doing it for a while that I'm sure are more than happy to help other physicians that have a story to tell it. And it benefits both sides. I mean, you get in front of their network and vice versa. And so there's a lot of people that have established networks out there, especially physicians that have been early adopters to the thought leadership concept that are going to be more than willing to help you as well as get accelerated lift while you're trying to get started in in content creation. Yeah. And you know, and I think physicians, we complain, right? The system is bogging us down. We don't like the system. It's not fair, this and that and the other. The problem is, is we don't say it like, you know, we complain, but no one gets to hear why, right? So collectively, we all need to get out there and tell everybody why healthcare needs to be this way versus this way. And so it's incumbent upon all of us physicians to be out there explaining our story so the constituents can hear it, whether it's a a mechanic, a pilot, a legislator, a healthcare executive, they need to hear the why of why we think healthcare needs to be fixed. And so then you create your voice and then you can see change and make your practice better and and do the things that we want to do. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. So but before we wrap up, going back actually to the entrepreneurial side, tell me a little bit about, because you've got more than one company that you're involved in specifically. So I'd love the listeners before we wrap up to kind of know about those and obviously different ways that they can get a hold of you and even in particular orthopedics out there that may want to know more about the opioid free approach you have to knee surgery. I want to be able to get them in front of you too. Yeah. So the two, one is called Site Medical. So it's a technology platform that we developed to help essentially digitize or datify a surgical technique. So the sales reps, our surgical techs, can learn a surgical procedure, use it during surgery, learn new techniques and things like that in a scalable way. And then we also help manage inventory, implants and things like that. And so that's been going well. The next one is something called Doc Social. So it's a new online platform that basically connects all healthcare stakeholders. If you think about it, most of the stakeholders in healthcare kind of live in silos, right? Physicians are over here, nurses are over there, therapists are over here. 
we kind of coalesce and come together around a singular patient, but then we go back into our corners when it's not involving a patient. And none of us really appreciate how each other thinks or why we think, what, how we think. But yet all the decision-making in healthcare is slowly becoming a team sport. And so it's not just me running into the CEO's office, thumping my chest saying, you know, I want this. It's nurses and therapists and pharmacists and everyone saying, yeah, P&T committees, VAC committees saying, let's go ahead and get this done. So we created a new platform to allow all healthcare professionals to learn, teach, and collaborate with each other. And so that's called Doc Social. And so those are the two, you know, time-consuming ventures I've been working on most recently. And it's been going very well. Can't complain. Excellent. We'll make sure we get those up in the show notes so people can find out more about them. And then for the orthos out there, and really, because this is going to lead back to getting kind of in touch with you, obviously you're active on LinkedIn, but if there's orthos out there that want to learn more about this process that you're implementing on the opioid free side, or really just listeners out there that like to get in touch with you, what's the best way to go about doing that? Yeah. So the two easiest ways are number one, LinkedIn. You can connect with me and message me there. And then on Doc Social. So doc.social. You can join that and connect with me on there. We've actually got content there. There's a group called Opiate Sparing Orthopedic Surgery, where you can learn what people are doing to limited opiates and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of great resources. Excellent. Excellent. And again, we'll get all of that stuff in the show notes as well for all the listeners out there. So you can easily get a hold of Dr. Dasa. And well, Dr. Dasa, thank you again so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to share a little bit of your story and give a little bit of advice to the listeners, especially the the surgeons out there that are trying to to grow their careers and, and everything that you're doing to advance medicine. So I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to today's latest episode of the Patient Convert Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform. We are on Apple, iTunes, Google, Stitcher, and Spotify, or you can sign up to receive the latest episode via email. Just check it out on my agency website or my personal website. And if you are looking for more amazing healthcare marketing information or just to engage, check us out at entropy.com. And for any of my amazing physician liaisons out there interested in growing their physician referrals or learning the strategies that it takes to build highly engaged physician referral networks. Check out my website, kellynot.com, where I have free webinars, free downloads, and of course, my online physician liaison training course, Physician Liaison University. And as always, I'm a huge believer in connecting, engaging, and supporting one another. And the best way we can do that is networking. And I always, always connect with you guys on social media. And one of my biggest social media platforms is LinkedIn. So feel free to connect with me there on LinkedIn or Instagram or Twitter at Kelly Knott. And thank you guys again for listening to the Patient Convert Podcast with your host, Kelly Knott.